and see if we can get on with this story about Ephraim. Maybe we're spending more time on Ephraim than we did even on Abraham. I don't know. I haven't counted the sermons. But I, I think it is important that we focus right now on this land and what's happening. I read yet another article oh, yesterday evening on one of the websites about uh, this longtime preacher, I guess, had been prognosticating what would happen uh, in the world and in this nation in terms of prophecy, but he said, I stated a long time ago, and he still holds to that position, that, that America is not mentioned in prophecy. How could the leading nation of the whole earth, the most prominent nation, the most dominant nation, on the face of the earth today, not be mentioned in prophecy, because we are the key nation to all the prophecies, frankly. So what is happening in this country is key to what will happen in the world, and it starts here. Now let's go to Hosea. We got down to chapter 12 last time I spoke. There's a brief review of chapter 11. Uh, God said, when Ephraim was a child, then I loved him, called him out of Egypt, uh, along with the rest of Israel, and he, how much he loved uh, Ephraim, and then how we've become so corrupt that he's thinking even of making us like the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Admon and Zeboam in verse 8, which were in the plains and were des destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. But he says, I'm not going to return to destroy Ephraim. Uh, they are a beloved son, his firstborn. He's not like a man. If he had the vengeance of man, he would destroy us utterly. That is the depth of his anger. But his mercy is also very deep and abiding. So because he is God, he will not destroy us. Then in verse 12 he says, Ephraim compasses me about with lies. We are a lying nation. We lie about everything. And the house of Israel with deceit. So it is throughout all Israel. But Judah yet rules with God and is faithful with the saints. Now that doesn't mean Judah is the only righteous tribe or nation out of the sons of Jacob. I think what it means is that within Judah are, or within Israel are the spiritual Jews. Well, they are the only ones that this could possibly be referring to who are faithful with the saints, are faithful with God, because Judah, as a physical tribe, is condemned more in the prophecies than probably any of the tribes. Ephraim and Judah, as I've mentioned before, are the primary ones mentioned in the prophecies. The others only mentioned in retrospect or in, um, in regard to them, and then only briefly. But Ephraim and Judah are mentioned throughout and quite prominently as the leader of Jacob. Now Jacob, of course, and all of Israel is mentioned more often than just Ephraim. But when it boils it down to a tribe, Ephraim is the prominent one being the firstborn and being the leader of Israel today. Now let's take that statement there at the end of verse 12 to heart. Because God does say that there are some who will be faithful to him and faithful to the saints here at the end. 
even within this corrupt nation of Ephraim. So I think we should take encouragement and some hope from that, that even though we are such a corrupt people, he has preserved within this nation a few who will be faithful to him. And I think that we can be counted in that number. I certainly hope so. Most of the church is not being very faithful with God, and many of them are departing entirely from God. So those who will serve God and will obey him, will sacrifice, they will be counted in this number he speaks of here, and spoken of very lovingly and kindly and mercifully. So let's be in that number, because the rest of this story is pretty grim. Uh, we should make every effort to be a part of God's faithful with him and with the saints. So let's go on to chapter 12. It says, Ephraim feeds on wind. Now, when you're hungry, have you ever stepped out of the house, faced into the wind, and opened your mouth real wide, and eaten of the wind? If you have done so, how satisfied were you? My aunt used to, we'd ask her what was going to be for dinner. She'd say, wind pudding and walk around. I never knew exactly what that meant, but I guess she meant take a big, deep, deep breath of air and walk around because that's all you're getting. Uh, of course, she always fixed dinner, but that was just a saying that she used. But it's an analogy that fits right here. Ephraim feeds on wind and follows after the east wind. So this country, then, will be looking to the east for help. Now, if you were in the Middle East, and we're speaking of that geography, and you looked to the east and to the east wind, uh, you'd be looking for help from Jordan and some of the Arab countries. And yet that isn't what it says in here. It says Ephraim will go as a silly dove to the Assyrian, verse 13 of chapter 5. There's another reference to that, I think, in the same book here. Now, east of here, across the Atlantic, what they used to call the river in ancient times, uh, is the Assyrian, to the east of us. The Assyrian, if we, if we, the perspective here were of the Middle East, the Assyrian would not be east. Even in this world's history, in, in the second settling of Babylon and Assyria, it would have been north and east, but not east. Ephraim feeds on wind and follows after the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation, and they do make a covenant with the Assyrians and oil is carried into Egypt. So even in this very verse, it talks about going to the Assyrian. Someone mentioned to me in an email this morning that, uh, I, I had kind of forgotten it, but there was a meeting among the high levels of the United States government which transpired on March 13th of this year, and it was supposed to be a top-secret meeting, but it leaked, as top-secret generally does, one way or another. But I was reminded 
what was said. And that is that in that meeting, they predicted that there would be an economic collapse by September. Some of you read that article. I did at the time, and I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about it. They also said that the government would collapse by February of 2009. Now, that has not transpired. We're not to February 2009 yet. But the first part of what they predicted has actually occurred. September and October, we began this financial crash, which is by no means over yet. And also, a third thing that was apparently mentioned in that meeting was that after the government collapsed, there would be civil war in the country. Now, it's been speculated by some that Obama might be a sacrificial lamb or be assassinated, which would bring on race riots. Uh, it might not take that. I don't know. I'm not predicting that. Uh, some have speculated that that could be the case. Uh, I wouldn't want to wish that on anyone, but uh, who knows what would bring this about. Of course, if the government collapses and the checks stop, Social Security and welfare and everything else, uh, and food supplies and everything that goes with it, it wouldn't take long till you had civil war. Now I want to go back for a moment here to uh, Isaiah, I mean Jeremiah, excuse me. Jeremiah 51. Here again, you'll recall in the series on Babylon, which was quite a long series, we went through and showed how all the Scriptures referring to Babylon were referring to this modern nation of the United States of America. Even though we are Israel, uh, we are ruled over by a Babylonian government and by a Babylonian culture out of Washington, D.C. And it does speak in Jeremiah 50, 51, and 52 several times of Israel dwelling within Babylon and how we're to flee from it and where to flee to. Uh, but here in chapter 51, verse 46, before I get too far off the track here, <clears throat> let's see, let's start in verse 45. My people, go you out of the midst of her, and deliver you every man his soul from the fierce anger of the eternal. So this land is about to have God's anger poured upon it, and he tells his people to get away before this happens. Now, of course, we're told in Michael, Micah, some have misinterpreted this and thought they should get out of the United States, and in some cases did. Uh, but Micah 4 adds more information. It says, flee from the city, go into the wilderness, uh, go even to Babylon. So you remain within that land that God is defining as Babylon, uh, and yet getting out of the cities and into the wilderness, because that's where he said, I will deliver you. So this verse is in <clears throat> the light of Micah 4, uh, 4, and certainly echoes what Micah is saying. But verse 46, And lest your heart faint, we are in fearful times. We are in times when people are beginning to worry. And when they opened up their 401ks this last month, uh, they were 201Ks in many cases, been cut in about half. So they're beginning to be distressed, worried, upset. 
Uh, General Motors announced just yesterday that they are on the cusp of bankruptcy. They didn't use that word, but unable to operate was the way they put it. But they would not be able to operate with the cash flow they have through next year. By May or June, they will be out of cash at the present rate of expenditures. expenditures. And of course, if vehicle, keep fall, uh, vehicle sales keep falling, it'd be even quicker than that. Ford and Chrysler are in the same boat and sinking fast. So we have our housing <clears throat> almost destroyed, and it will be completely destroyed before it's done. We'll see that even today. And vehicles as well. Those are the two main manufacturing sectors left in America, and they are both in severe danger of being completely wiped out at this time. They figure if General Motors goes under it, it will cost at least two and a half million jobs by the time you count salesmen and dealerships and parts and factories and so on that support General Motors along with themselves. That's a lot of people without jobs. I heard just yesterday that best friends out here had dropped between 30 and 40 people as of Thursday. Well, that's 30 or 40 jobs, and it doesn't sound like a lot of jobs, <clears throat> but consider that that's in the town of Kanab. Now, what if you had 40 people start going over Kanab Monday morning trying to find a job? How many jobs can you find in Kanab? <clears throat> there might be a opening at Wendy's or somewhere like that, but there's not many jobs out there, not right now. So the impact hits fairly close to home. Uh, my sister told me they were basically, they, they used the excuse that the economic uh, times, but she said they're getting people, rid of people they really didn't want and didn't like. So I called Rome Hills up right away, <laughs> see if they still had a job. <clears throat> Sorry, I couldn't help it. They do have their jobs still. They must be liked or needed or something. Anyway, and unless your heart faint, unless we become fearful and too worried, and you fear for the rumor that shall be heard in the land. Well, that's one rumor that I brought up. They had a top secret meeting, and it came out that there would be a financial collapse by September and also that the government would collapse by February. Uh, that's enough to make you a little concerned, is it not? And maybe civil war following that. So we heard a rumor this year. <clears throat> a rumor shall both come one year, and after that, in another year, another is in italics in my Bible. I don't know whether it means the next year. It may. <laughs> After that, in another year, shall come a rumor, and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. That is civil war. So there'll be rumor, and then in another year, violence, and civil war and unrest. So what they were planning in that meeting, I don't think they were looking in a crystal ball saying, well, this could happen. If they were saying it, they planned to make it happen. It's part of the plan that this would occur. Now, there have been several people recently in high places like Colin Powell and others who have said that come January 20th or 21st, the new president would be tested severely. 
and who knows but what this might be the case. Uh, let's tie in this east wind thing in Hosea 12 because they're having a G20 meeting on November 15th, just a few days from now, in which European rulers are saying they plan to set up a whole new financial system for the world. That they want a new Bretton Woods, which was a meeting whereby they gave the United States uh, oversight of the world currency or reserve currency for the world. And they're saying among the Europeans today that they want a new reserve currency, that they're going to dump the dollar and go to an entirely new system. Now, if that happens, we are done. Over. Finished. The American dollar will be absolutely worthless to the whole world. They will seek the new currency, whatever it may be, and I won't speculate on that. But the uh, Prime Minister or President of France, whichever he is, stated also that they are setting a 100-day deadline for this to be done. That is, they intend to get it done within 100 days. Now, that puts it in early February. Uh, what is this thing we just read here about the government will collapse by February 9th? Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, the French president did not go on to say what they would do if the deadline passed and they didn't have the new uh, economic setup made. But he did set a deadline that they plan to have it done by then. Now, is the United States going to Europe and especially to Assyria like a silly dove, feeding on the east wind, hoping that our problems will be resolved by this new currency, because our leaders recognize that ours is shot, and they have planned it that way. They have given their hand, as it says. Where does it say that? That's right here in this context. I might come across it here in a few minutes. I don't know. Let's see. No, that wasn't it. Right here in chapter 50, 51, or 52. Oh, here, yeah. Uh, chapter 50, verse 15. Shout against her roundabout, speaking of Babylon or America, she has given her hand. Her foundations are fallen. Her walls are thrown down. For it is the vengeance of the eternal. Take vengeance upon her as she has done due to her. She has given her hand. In other words, our leaders have treasonously given their hand to the new world order and God is going to bring us down and it will be his vengeance but we have made it possible we've shaken hands with them we've made a deal with them in other words to turn our nation over to them now if we turn ourselves over to Germany what are we doing? God calls the Assyrian the rod of his anger back in Isaiah. And he says that you're feeding on the wind when you go there. You'll not be filled. So our government leaders will turn our economy and everything over to 
<clears throat> this new world government that is going to be set up. And they plan to have the currency and the economic situation settled within a hundred days. That's downright scary. So he said, lest you be troubled, lest you fear, know that God has his hand in this. He will take care of his people. Now it echoes what he says over and over in Haggai and Zephaniah and Isaiah and other places, that when these events come, to fear not, to be strong, to be of good courage, and work. We have a work to do. You may remember last, I think it was last time I spoke, I spent quite a little time showing that Herbert Armstrong did not do the end-time work. He did a preparation work of calling many people. God would then sort that down, narrow it down to a few, and that they would do the work at the end. The work of rebuilding the temple, reinstituting the church as it should be, and then warning the world, and when that work is finished, the end will come. Now, I just turned one up this morning that is really interesting in the light of that. It's talking about fleeing out of Babylon in chapter 50, chapter 51, verse 6. Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be cut, not cut off in her iniquity. Now, that echoes Revelation 18:4. Depart from her, that you be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. But get away from her. This is the time of the eternal's vengeance. He will render unto her, unto her a recompense. Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunk of her wine, her wealth. Therefore the nations are mad. We're going to see this brought out a little clearer later on and how it has to fit with this nation. It's not talking about some ancient Babylon across the seas in the Middle East. It's talking about the modern Babylon that we know as the United States of America. It says, Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. Howl for her. Take balm for her pain. If so be, she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. We would, if there was some way, wouldn't we save our country? Now, why would Christians want to save some Babylon somewhere across the ocean? We wouldn't. But this is speaking to God's people here. And says, we would have healed her if we could. I hate to see this nation destroyed. If there's any way I could save it, I would try. But God says in Jeremiah also, don't even pray for this people. They will do you no good. They've sinned, and I will destroy them. Forsake her. Don't pray for her. Don't try to save her. Forsake her is God's instruction. And let us go, everyone, into his own country. A lot of people have come into this country, and Mexicans are already starting to leave. They're starting to go back to Mexico because the job situation is getting where they can't make a living here anymore with construction gone and other things that are attendant to it. For her judgment is reached unto heaven and is lifted up even to the skies. It's a warning. It says this, this nation is going to be destroyed. So all you people who came from foreign lands, whether it's Japan or China or Poland or wherever you came from, you better get out of here. 
And he even tells his own people explicitly to get away from her. Let's notice now, in this context of destruction coming, verse 10, the eternal has brought forth our righteousness. Speaking of God's people again, his spiritual Jews, his, his church. Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. The end time work of God will be done from Zion. And Zion is in Ephraim. We're talking about this land, Ephraim. We're talking about it being the center of Babylon and representing Babylon right now. It falls twice. This nation will fall as Babylon once, and the new world order shortly thereafter will also fall. But it will be the new king of Babylon. So it's speaking to people of God in this land who are to go to Zion and declare there the work of the Lord our God. So in Zion and Jerusalem, God's temple will be built, and Jerusalem will be built again in troublous times. So we're getting a little bit of the timing of this, that, you know, we're not in, I wouldn't call it troublous times yet. We're in frightening times. We're in times where it appears that everything is going to change, but it hasn't yet. I mean, people are losing jobs. People are losing wealth. But the stores are still full of goods. Uh, we can still operate essentially as we always have by being a little more careful. But I think what Daniel is saying there when he says troublous times is he means all hell's going to break loose. And that's the kind of troublous times that Jerusalem will be rebuilt in. So even here in Babylon or Babylonian America, God is going to do a mighty work. The work of God will be done in Zion. It just adds emphasis to what I was trying to explain last time, that this is where the work will be done. <clears throat> okay, let's go back. Well, let's see. Wait a minute here. I, I want to get a little more since we're talking about the sense of timing here. Notice in chapter 49, verse 39, it talks about it shall come to pass in the latter days. So Jeremiah is not writing of the captivity, the Babylonian captivity that lasted 70 years. He's writing here in this book about now, the latter days. And then he talks about his word against uh, Chaldea or Babylon. He says it will be taken, verse 3, for out of the north there comes up a nation against her, which shall make her land desolate, and none shall dwell therein. They shall remove, they shall depart, both man and beast. So the Assyrian was the king of the north. And I would not be surprised at all, there in the northern hemisphere, toward the northern part of Europe, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of this come as polar flights and come straight down through Canada from the north. In those days, and in that time, says the Eternal, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together going and weeping, they shall go and seek the Eternal, their God. Now we're talking about the latter days here, we're not talking about the millennium, 
we're talking about the time when desolation will come. That it's imminent. Now people have wondered, will the gathering of the church occur before or after the financial collapse and the taking of this nation into captivity? And since we were already talking a little bit about the timing of this thing and how it could happen as early as this year that this nation go under. Remember all the places that talk about it say suddenly, in a moment, in a day, in a month. Uh, it talks about how it will lean out as a wall and then fall suddenly in Isaiah 30, 13. There are many places where it refers to the fall of this nation and it is done in a very short period of time. And the financial collapse is a part of it. Zephaniah 1 talks about the financial collapse and being moved out of our homes. We'll dwell, we'll build them, but not dwell in them. So the financial collapse you see happening and the people being put out of their homes, I would say, has to be a part of this. So it's something that God says, even in the book of Habakkuk, He says, It'll seem like it's taking a long time, but it will not tarry. It will come suddenly, it will not tarry. So once this process starts, it is going to happen very, very quickly. We do not have years and years and years left because the Bible so many places says instantly or suddenly or in a year or not a year, a day or a month. Revelation 18 talks about a month. I think it even mentions in one day. Those simply do not, they're, they, they're symbolic of a very, very short period of time. You know, a day is as a year in Bible prophecy. And a, a year is as a, a day is as a thousand years. So he equates the seven-year, thousand-year plan of man as seven days like the creation week. So God certainly uses that symbolism. Now, I don't know that this will take a year. It mentions a day, it mentions a month, and it mentions suddenly and instantly. But it will what that put all those together, and I think it means a very short period of time. A wall can lean and lean and lean, but when it goes, it goes fast. You ever notice that? When something falls, it doesn't take long. Now, it may lean a while, and it may look like it's going to fall, but when it goes, it just goes. That's the end of it. And that's the analogy that he uses there in Isaiah 30 to talk about our country. <clears throat> so, he says, I'm going to make her land desolate. I'm going to send armies out of the north. And in those days is when people will come. So it appears that the gathering of God's people is going to come at about the same time as the collapse and captivity of this nation. And it may require some of this or even all of it to happen before people will wake up and do it. Now, in Zephaniah 2, it warns that the decree of financial destruction needs to be heeded and that we should gather before the collapse. But most apparently, will not. They will have to see something that causes them to realize they need to go somewhere. Now, if this is Zion here, and I believe it is, this area, why would they come here? 
Now, to most people, if you said go to Zion, they'd figure, well, I've got to go over to the Middle East. They wouldn't come here. Now, what that tells me is that God is going to do something powerfully that will cause people to see where to go and what to do. It will have to be something that he does. So, the gathering cannot be, if the fall of this nation has started, and it doesn't take long, then the gathering has to start very soon as well. That's the good news. Along with the bad, the good has to begin to happen. God will make, at some point, a separation between the world and its destruction and his people and their protection. If you don't believe this is the place, I would say you should start scratching gravel just as soon as possible to find out where. Because we already know that even though God is going to do some powerful and majestic and enormous things, 90% of the church will not pay attention. We already know that. Only a 10% remnant will respond. Incredible as it may sound. But God did have a preparatory work with Herbert Armstrong to call many, and out of that he will choose a 10% remnant that he will stir to come and build the temple. And not just the temple, but Jerusalem as well, because it will be built in troublous times. And it is a place that has been desolate for many generations. As Zechariah puts it, it will be built in its own place. In its place, its own place. He emphasizes it there in Zechariah 12, I think it is. 11 or 12. Excuse me while I get a little water. I'm healed, but my throat's still just a little scratchy if I use it too much. <coughs> All right, they'll come weeping, verse 5, they shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the eternal in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. Now, why would they ask the way to Zion? I think that's a good question. I would not have to ask, and most people would not, if they know that the real Zion is at the edge of the old city of Jerusalem in the Middle East. You wouldn't have to ask. You just buy a ticket to Tel Aviv and a taxi to Jerusalem. You walk around the end of the wall, and there you would find Zion. That'd be easy. Most people who are so-called Christian and most members of the Church of God know what that original Zion was and where it is. But the way this is written makes me think that people who start looking for the true Zion where God is working are going to wonder where it is and they'll have to ask how to get there. Interesting point Jeremiah makes. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They've turned them away on the mountains. They've gone from mountain to hill. They've forgotten their resting place. For mountains or big governments, big churches, they've gone to hills, gotten smaller and smaller and smaller.
Anyway, that gives you a little sense of the sense of the timing. Notice verse 28. It's talking about the hammer of the whole earth being broken in verse 23. And what nation could that be other than this nation? Verse 28, the voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord, our God, the vengeance of his temple. So we're fleeing out of Babylon, which we have defined as the United States of America, the leader of Babylon today, and the land that God calls Babylon to be destroyed. And Micah 4 says, get out of the cities of Babylon, but go even to Babylon in the wilderness. And this is talk and if that's the case, that means we stay in this country, right? So here he's telling us to flee the land of Babylon and declare in Zion. So we are to stay in the country of Babylon, but go into the wilderness, and there God will deliver us. So that contradicts this if we're supposed to go across the ocean to the Middle East. Does it not? If we're told to stay here, not leave, but leave and go into the wilderness from the cities, then that must mean, by definition, in order to make these scriptures fit together, that Zion is in the wilderness of this nation. Somewhere. Has to be. I'm spending quite a little time on these things, but, you know, if God is only going to protect his people in one place, it's a real good idea to know where it is. It really is. And it's worth some effort to go through and add material and more material and more material from the Bible, which indicate where. Okay, Ephraim feeds on wind and follows after the east wind. You don't get much out of that. It'll destroy you. He daily increases lies and desolation. They do make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried into Egypt. Now, this isn't talking about crude oil. Uh, this is talking about olive oil. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.8 shows that uh, the land of Israel was a land of oil. calls it oil land. And Ezekiel 27:17 says essentially the same thing. So what are we doing? We're taking an oil and wine represent wealth. So we're trying to make a deal with the Assyrians to the east, and we're taking that which is valuable to us, our wealth, to Egypt. Now Egypt could mean one of several things here. It doesn't necessarily mean that little fourth-rate nation in northern Africa. Egypt in the Bible symbolizes the sin of the world. We are going to the world in our G20 meeting on November 15th and on other meetings being held in Europe and Asia, and we're going to go hat in hand to try to get salvation from them. And we will promise them all kinds of things. We have already sent hundreds of billions of dollars in the last 60 days to other countries 
we are sending our oil, our wealth, overseas to try to make a last gasp attempt to have friends. At least we would view it that way. Alliances. And yet at the same time, we have to realize that our government is shaking hands with them and making a deal that is going to impoverish and make peasants and slaves out of our people. The leaders are trying to save themselves by sending our oil to the world, our wealth, and they will use us as cannon fodder. So, chapter 12, verse 1 of Hosea is happening right now, today, as we speak. The Eternal also has a controversy with Judah, not just Ephraim, but Judah, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. Now, much of Judah resides within Ephraim, so he's got them lumped together here. So it's not just the Ephraimites, but also the Judahites, the Jews among us. According to his doings will he recompense him. And not just Ephraim, but all Jacob is included here as well. All the nations of Israel are going down. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yes, he had power over the angel and prevailed. Remember, he wrestled all night with Christ, and Christ touched the hollow of his thigh come morning, and Jacob limped the rest of his life, but he did hang on. He hung on all night, and he, in that sense, prevailed. He also repented, and that's how he really prevailed with God, was through repentance. He wept and made supplication to him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke with us. So Jacob found God in Bethel. Bethel means house of God. Beth means house of El means God. So he says that where Jacob found God was at Bethel. Now Jacob named it Bethel because he felt it was the house of God. Now God carries that forward in the prophecy of Hosea and says here that it was at the house of God. Jacob knew what he was talking about. Now don't miss this. It says, Jacob found him at the house of God, and there he spoke with us. What Jacob spoke there, and maybe what God spoke as well, was spoken not only to Jacob, it was spoken to us. Hosea is writing to us today, this land, Ephraim. And he's writing to the true people of God within it who are faithful with the saints. Okay? That's who this is addressed to. Let's understand. Now, since such a point is made of this, I think we should go back to Genesis 28 and read the account again because he's speaking to us today. That is important. So, let's forthwith go to Genesis 28 and review this story. I know we went through it just recently, but I think it's important to review it in the light of what we're reading today. 
and where our nation is today. When I first went through Hosea, <clears throat> as the first book in the Minor Prophets series back in, what, 97, I didn't understand near as much as I do today. I still thought Ephraim was Great Britain. I had thoughts that maybe it would be here, but I think that's since been proved pretty well to be the case. Anyway, Genesis 28, uh, Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran, verse 10, and he lighted or landed upon a certain place, a particular spot, and tarried there all night because the sun was set. Uh, it got dark, he couldn't keep traveling, so he spent the night there. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. Sounds strange. I prefer a fluffy pillow, but there have been times when I was out in the wilderness that I actually positioned a rock under my head and found it more comfortable than just laying my head back on the ground. So he made pillows and a bed of rocks. Verse 12, And he dreamed. If your head's on a rock, you might tend to do that. But this was a specific dream. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. So in this dream, the end of a ladder on earth, and it went clear up to God's throne. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. So this long ladder and angels of God going up and down. That's what he saw in the dream. And behold, the eternal stood above it. So at the top of it, in heaven, stood Christ. And said, He said some things here that are written for us, Hosea says. And I think some of the things Jacob said there were also said for us. So it may be that everything that was said here was for us. Okay? And said, I am the eternal God of Abraham, your father. That was actually his grandfather. He says, and the God of Isaac. So your grandfather and your father. Now God tells us in Malachi 4 that we are to turn our hearts to our fathers. Now our fathers, they wouldn't be really our fathers, but they'd be our great, 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 great grandfathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he referred to Abraham even here as to uh, Jacob's father. Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. I'm the God of both those, and I can be your God too. That is not yet established at this point. The land whereon you lie, the particular spot you have picked out to set rocks to place your head on, the land where you lie, to you will I give it and to your seed. Wherever his head reposed that night was given not only to Jacob, but it was given to his seed. And your seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north 
and to the south, and in you, and in your seed. See, it's talking to us. His seed will become as the stars of heaven and the sands of the sea. And that has not happened until this end-time generation. So indeed, God was speaking to us, not just to Jacob, but he promised the land that Jacob had his head on to us, Jacob's children. Now you might say, well, that could have just been Judah. We'll get to that here in a moment. Which of the tribes of Israel would that land be in? Because if Israel today is in northwestern Europe, the United Kingdom, maybe some of them down in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, America, Canada, that particular spot he was lying on had to be given to Jacob's seed. Now, if we can define which of his sons were the ones he was speaking of here, then we can determine which nation today that Jacob was lying in, if we could make that determination. Before we go there, let's continue on with the story. In your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you and will keep you in all places where you go and will bring you again into this land. So what did Jacob do after this? He went to a different land where he picked up his Leah and Rachel. And then later on he came back to the original place where he had been. For I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to you of. Now he would submit also that when Israel was taken captive out of their land that they were given, God brought them back. If this were the original promised land, for instance, and God took us into captivity by ships, as he said he would do in Deuteronomy, then later on we would be brought back because this is the land God said we would inherit in the end time when our seed would become as the stars of heaven and the sands of the sea. How many nations today that are Israelite nations could you say that of? I don't think you could say it of Holland or Norway or the amount of Israelites in South Africa, or even the United Kingdom. This is the land where there are over 300 million people. We don't outnumber the Chinese, but we by far outnumber any other country in Israel, by far. Let's, let's go ahead then and compare some scriptures. I want to turn, first of all, to Revelation 18. Keep your finger here, we'll be back. Or don't keep your finger, I don't care, you can find it again. We always say that, but you can do what you want. Revelation 18. Now this is talking very clearly about modern Babylon falling. 
And we went through this to show that no other nation could fit the things that are mentioned here except this country. But here I want uh, verse 9. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is your judgment come. Now, he says that in Jacob's seed would all nations be blessed. Look at the world today. Of the countries of Israel, which would you say had all the nations of the earth been blessed in? Which nation has given out more foreign aid, and I mean by the billions and billions and billions of dollars, there is none that even begins to compare now, the British Empire, when it ruled the waves, went to foreign countries and raped and pillaged and took the wealth that they had. America has been different. We have sent them our wealth by the hundreds of billions of dollars all over the world. So they have been blessed with, what did it say here? Live deliciously with her. To live deliciously means you have things that you want and desire. If you're going to live deliciously with a great whore, you're speaking of wine, you're speaking of fine foods, you're speaking of the things that you would desire. You're not speaking of spinach and celery, generally. Now, Verse 11, the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys their merchandise anymore. What is the market nation of the world? Whose economies have been blessed? By whom? America has bought more Japanese automobiles and four-wheelers and televisions and you name it, than any other nation. They've gotten rich because of us. Taiwan picked it up and got rich because of us. Hong Kong did the same. China is now doing the exact same thing. The Chinese now are becoming a very, very rich nation because of Walmart and other outlets in America today. We buy anything. Anybody has to sell from anywhere. You cannot say that of the United Kingdom. You cannot say that of any country in Israel except this one. Can you? Can anybody name me a country of Israel that's been a bigger market for the world and made them rich than this one? I don't think you can. Verse 15. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. For in one hour so great riches has come to nothing. 
The shipmasters, the company and ships and sailors, those that trade by sea, stood far off and cried and said, What city is like this great city? Our best customer just went under. What are we going to do? Woe is us. Where did the ships of the world go? They haul crude oil mostly here. They haul manufactured goods mostly here. There is no other nation on earth that could even come close to fitting the definitions of, of Revelation 18. All right, let's go to Ezekiel 27. Ezekiel 27. Uh, here I want verse 33. When your wares, and this is speaking of, this is a prophecy against Tyre, which I think is modern day New York. When your wares went forth out of the seas, you filled many people. You did enrich the kings of the earth with the multitude of your riches and of your merchandise. In the time when you shall be broken by the seas and the depths of the waters, your merchandise and all your company in the midst of you shall fall. Wall Street goes, American trading prowess goes, the whole world economy goes with it. And that's what's happening right now, today. The whole world economy is suffering. Other nations are already in worse shape than we are because of what we have done. Now we're going to get in worse shape very quickly, but this is the way it's going. And speaking of us, Jeremiah 51. We were already in Jeremiah, but I want to go back here for a moment. Jeremiah 51. And here I want verse 7. Babylon, well, I read this, but I didn't make this point. Babylon has been a golden cup in the Eternal's hand that made all the earth drunk. Wine represents wealth. We've given the whole world wealth. Wine made them drunk on our riches. The nations have drunken of her wine. Therefore, the nations are mad. They're going to go crazy. They're going to go insane when they see us being destroyed because they'll have no place to sell their goods anymore. So when it says, In your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed, back here in Genesis 28, pray tell, which nation is it talking about? It's not talking about all the tribes of Jacob. And in fact, it has to be talking about a specific tribe of Jacob because it said the place where your head is lying will be given to your seed seed. And, and, that, and in that, that country would all nations of the earth be blessed. Follow? He, was, he, he didn't have his head in 12 different countries at once. He had it in one spot called, we'll see in a moment, Bethel. And the nation out of Jacob that all the lands of the earth would be blessed in would be where his head was laying, north, south, east, and west of his nighty-night spot. That's where it would be. All right? 
you don't believe me yet, let's see a couple more scriptures. Genesis 49. We read this recently too, but I want to make a, a different point here. Genesis 49, verse 22. <coughs> Excuse me. Joseph is a fruitful bough. Even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. A very prolific vine, in other words. Now he's comparing where the different nations would be in the last days, as it says in verse 1 of this chapter. And he says that Joseph, in comparison to the others, will be a fruitful bough running over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. Did the Germans? Did the Japanese? Did the whole world want to destroy America? Yes, they did. This time, they've learned, and they will destroy us first before going after others. But his bow abode in strength. Our military was strong. We didn't go under, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Were we delivered in World War II, miraculously, in two or three different wars, I mean battles and specifically, along the coast of France? Yes, we were. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Even by the God of your father who shall help you, and by the Almighty who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. You'll have more children than any of the, of the other nations of Israel. The blessings of your father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors under the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. Now that is a pretty wide pronouncement of blessing, is it not? Joseph's blessings, as delineated here, are far beyond anything else said to any of the other tribes. Okay? He shall be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. So God says the incredible wealth, the blessings beyond the everlasting hills, would be given to Joseph. That is the only tribe listed here that could even begin to, in the end time, be the ones that could bless the whole world. There's nobody else that could. All right, that narrows it down to two, doesn't it? Ephraim and Manasseh, where the blessings would come in such abundance. Let's go back to chapter 48. Again, we've been here, but you remember the story about Ephraim and Manasseh and Joseph taking them to his father Jacob. Verse 17, And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head onto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put your right hand upon his head. Jeremiah 31 echoes this and said that Ephraim was made the firstborn. His father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people, but he also shall be great. But truly, 
His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. Ephraim means double portion, double fruit. Deuteronomy 33:17 says there will be tens of thousands of Ephraim and the thousands of Manasseh. And today, there are tens of thousands of Americans for every thousand Britons. So, Joseph would be given incredible, boundless blessings, and Ephraim would be given a double portion and more of those blessings being delineated as the firstborn child. Now, where's Ephraim today? It can only be this nation. And if this nation has been blessed to the extent these scriptures are talking about, it is only this nation that could fulfill becoming the merchant of the earth, the one who blessed all nations. And in actual fact, apart from the scriptures, if you look at the last 50 years in history, this is where it has occurred. This country, as Ephraim in the end time, is the fulfillment of these prophecies. Now let's go back to Genesis 28. I think that we have narrowed down which tribe, which nation, which land Joseph, I mean Jacob, had his dream in. It could only be this nation. The land he was lying on is the original promised land. And by Bible definition, going through these scriptures, it had to be this land and this land only. That's why Zion is here. That's why I fully believe we will find that the original Jerusalem was here. And that it has been desolate for many generations. Satan has made a very, very clever counterfeit in the Middle East, and there will be a false Messiah and a false Jerusalem with a false Jewish temple built. But God's temple will be built by his people in troublous times in the original place, her own place, as Zechariah says. So his seed has blessed the earth, through this nation, not through any other. Behold, I am with you. I'll keep you. Let's see. Verse 16, And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Eternal is in this place. And I knew it not. <laughs> God is in this place, and I didn't even know it. Now, I find that very interesting, that we, the seed of Jacob are living in this place, which is the promised land, and we didn't even know it. Did we? We thought it was over there somewhere. It always mystified me when I saw the blessings here, and I thought, well, if that was the promised land, how is this the promised land? And I thought, well, God must have just added this to it. No, this was it. That land over there has never been blessed. And the seed of Jacob does not live there today in the latter days 
when these prophecies are to come to pass. There are a few Jews living over there, and most of them are Edomite Jews. They're not even true Jews. They're not Israelites, in other words. Israel, the Israel of God, does not have a presence in the Middle East today. They are not as the sand of the sea. They are not as the stars of heaven. And that country has not blessed the whole world. In fact, that land has had billions and billions and billions of foreign aid to even stay afloat and exist. Case closed. You cannot believe the Bible if you believe that that land has blessed the whole world. Because it hasn't. The Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. I lived in this land all these years, and I knew not that the house of God was here. Now I did see his house, his spiritual house, his church here. I saw it was here. It spread as a low-growing vine, as Ezekiel 17 says, around the world, but this is where it was. So the house of God was in the southwestern United States, of all places. Glory be. Could you believe it? Why did God pick southwestern United States for Herbert Armstrong to build the preparatory work for what was to come? Is that just coincidence? I really rather doubt it. Let's go on and see what else we might learn here. God is in this place, and I knew it not, and he was afraid. It should scare us to think that God might be in this place. Because God is high above us, and it's fearful to meet God. And said, how dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Jacob said, where I slept in Ephraim today, the original promised land, was the house of God, and it was the gate to heaven. The place that is the access to our Father in heaven. Now consider that God said there's only two places on earth you can keep the feast. One is in the city that he would name among the tribes. And other scriptures show that he made that one Jerusalem. Or if it be too far for you in your own house. Those are the only two places that God authorized the Feast of Tabernacles to be held. Now maybe he granted somewhat of a reprieve during the preparatory work of Herbert Armstrong by allowing that, by extension, Jerusalem being the church, Hebrews 12, 22, and 23, to be held in other places. Because, technically speaking, you could have a place in Borneo where the church was that could be considered part Jerusalem. But the original intent was the original Jerusalem. And they all went up to Jerusalem to keep the feast. 
Now, I believe that God is going to narrow it back down to his original intent. You know, he had an original intent with divorce and remarriage in Genesis. And he allowed Moses, because of the hardness of hearts, to expand that for a while. But then Christ brought it right back to the original intent in Matthew 19. So God may have allowed a broader picture, but he is going to bring it back to his original intent. There's only one place on earth they're going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles when the beast is running the earth. And that will be at Jerusalem. The true Jerusalem. And that's where God's people will come. The beast will not allow the feast to be kept anywhere else. So the distance will not be too far because they're going to gather to the original place of Jerusalem is where they're going to gather. This is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. Not crude oil, again, olive oil. And he called the name of that place Bethel, that is, the house of God. Hosea refers to it as Bethel, the house of God. So God accepted that. Jacob had a true revelation there that that was where he was laying in Jerusalem, the house of God. I know a mountain but I've seen all kinds of petroglyphs on that show a square house of God with the horns indicating that it is the house of God. Bethel. The name of that city was called Lutz at the first. And Jacob bowed a vow, saying... Now this is written for us, remember. Hosea says it. it was written for us. Jacob bowed a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. Now God had referred to this when he spoke to him from the top of the ladder as of himself being the God of Abraham and Isaac. And here a covenant is made with God that if God would keep his promises to him, he would commit his life to God and that the eternal would be his God. He then made a commitment which in any covenant made with God has to be a part of that commitment. So that I come again to my Father's house in peace, and the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. Bethel, the house of God. That spot is where the house of God is today. And of all that you shall give me, I will surely give you the tenth unto you. Part of the covenant that Jacob made with God. His commitment to him was that he would tithe to God as his father Abraham had done. Now Jacob knew Abraham. It was his grandfather. Abraham lived 175. 
uh, <coughs> Jacob was born to Isaac when Isaac was 40, and Isaac was born when Abraham was 100. So Isaac was 100, or let's see, Abraham would have been 140 at the time that Jacob was born. So there's 35 years there where he could have sat at Abraham's knee and Abraham told him of his covenant with God and that it included that he would give 10% to God. Now later on, uh, Moses added two more tithes, the tithe for the poor, the widow, the orphan, as a third, as a third and the second to make sure God's peace get kept. Those scriptures are all in there and were added later on. But the tenth went first of all to God, and the tithe, even in Moses, was to go to the priests. God said, I give it to the priests. So God, it was given to God, but God said, I defer, I'll give it to the priests. That's very clear in the book of Leviticus. But any time you make a covenant with God, tithing it has to be a part of that covenant. It is your part in saying, I commit myself to you, and I will tithe to you in so doing to prove my commitment to you. Now I think that explains why the book of Malachi is written the way that it is. Malachi tells us that God said we were robbing him. Well, he said he was upset with them. And they said, well, why? And then God used specifically tithing and said... But you rob God. Well, how have we robbed you? In tithes and in offerings. Both. Not just one, but both. So, the end book, Malachi, where God defines the end time, God makes the key factor tithing. Key factor. And then he says in chapter 4 that at the end time he will send Elijah the prophet who will turn our hearts to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to our Father in heaven, and even to our physical fathers, ultimately. So, Genesis 28 is written to us, Ephraim today, and those spiritual Jews within Ephraim. It's written to us. So Genesis 28 applies to you and to me. It cannot be any other way. When you are baptized, part of the covenant you make with God is to tithe. And if you leave that out, you do not have a covenant with God. You don't have one. And that's why God uses it as such a powerful saying in Malachi 3. It is one of the most important doctrines in the entire Bible because it shows our commitment to God. Without it, we have no commitment and we have no covenant with God. Our baptism is invalid. It means nothing. It was part of the Abraham covenant. It was part of the Jacobic covenant. And it was what they used as collateral in the commitment and the covenant with God. It is that important. 
That's why God uses it as such an important thing in Malachi 3 when he's talking directly to the end-time church. He could have used any number of things where we disobey him, couldn't he? Yes, he could have, because we disobey him in so many, many ways. But that's the one he chose because it is part of the covenant. I don't think I really understood that until I began to study this and to recognize what Jacob was actually doing here and where he was doing it and how he was doing it and how so very, very important it truly is. And it's written to you and to me. Now let's go back to Hosea. about done. Oh, I didn't change this watch. It says 3 o'clock. That one says 2, doesn't it? I want to pick up one more point down here and then we'll close. How, how much tape we got? About 10 minutes? I can do it. Pray for me. Anyway, he's <clears throat> talking about Jacob here in verses 3 and 4. And he found him in Bethel, the house of God, and there he spoke with us. So God is saying again that Bethel, where that man was, in the land of Ephraim, is the promised land and is where the house of God is. Even the eternal God of hosts, the eternal is his memorial. He, got, he made a memorial there to God and of God, and God showed him that's where the gate to heaven would be. The original Jerusalem in the land of Ephraim where Jacob had his head. That is Jerusalem in her place, her own place. Uh, so, the eternal is his memorial. Therefore turn you to your God, keep mercy and judgment, and wait on your God continually. Turn to God is the advice because of what Jacob said. Now, we need to take everything that was in that account back there that was said in Genesis 28, brethren, and apply it to ourselves, okay? It was a memorial made by our father Jacob whom we're told to look to at the end time. We're supposed to do as Jacob did and think as Jacob thought. Everything he said back there applies to you and to me. He spoke with us, and God says that that was a memorial. Now, what do you do when you make a memorial? You, usually men will cut out a stone, and then they'll write some things on it, won't they? That's the memorial. Well, Jacob set a stone and wrote about the house of God on it. And I can show you a stone right now that may be that stone that has a house of God written on it in petroglyphs. Incredible as that may sound. I've sat in it, sat on it, looked at it. So what he said there was a memorial. Everything Jacob said. Therefore turn you to your God. Jacob wrote it there, and his advice to us in this land today, written to Ephraim, us, is to turn to our God. 
Keep mercy and judgment. Be merciful. Use right judgment. And wait on the eternal continually. Now Habakkuk screamed at God a little bit. And then he said, I better back off and go sit on my watch and wait on God. Now it's a little distressing. It's a little frustrating right now, the way things are going in the world and in the church for that matter. God said, be merciful, judge good judgment, and wait patiently for God. Now, speaking of Ephraim, verse 7, that's what the whole chapter here is about, is Ephraim. And it has the story of Jacob and us in it. Uh, He is a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loves to oppress. Now, who is that talking of? Didn't we read about the merchant country back in Revelation 18, Ezekiel, Jeremiah? We are a merchant country. New York is our merchant uh, city, Tyre. And there is where we are seeing the balances of deceit. Now they say they're bailing out those people for us. No, they're bailing out their friendly banksters is who they're bailing out. They're bailing out people they want to be our allies and save us from ourselves even as they sell us out. They only want their own hide saved and they're throwing you in as collateral on the deal. So these words could never have been truer than they are this very day. A merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loves to oppress. Take away your 401k, your Social Security, and everything else. Oppress the little guy while the CEOs make hundreds of millions of dollars a year. They love to oppress. And boy, are we in the middle of it today. Ephraim said, Yet I am become rich. Richest nation on earth. Made other nations rich. I have found me out substance. In all my labors they shall find no iniquity in me that were sin. There is America today. We have become rich because we are such a wonderful people and we're so dedicated and we're so knowledgeable and so smart. We're the richest nation on earth and we're also a Christian nation. And no sin can be found in us of any substance whatever. Could that be anyone but us? Could these scriptures be referring to anyone but us? Good place to stop on that thought.